I would like you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark's Gospel. And we're going to read from verse 21. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath day he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately, the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. Now there are things in our lives for all of us that um, remain there, they stick in there. And even after 70 odd years of being around, I still remember one particular instance with my grandfather. He used to tell me stories about how when you went over the Rimutaka incline and the old fell engines and the carriages, how you went through a tunnel and in the middle of the tunnel a bell rang. And when the Rimutaka was about to close, the Rimutaka line, he took me on one of the last trains, it may have even been the last train for all I know, but he took me for the journey over the hill so that I could hear the bell that told the engine drivers that they were either starting the decline or they had reached the top and they were going over the top. And sure enough, there it was, just clang. And you knew that you were at the top of the incline. Well, that stuck with me. And I think that what we're dealing with here in the Gospel of Mark are the things that stuck in the minds of Peter as he remembers his time with the Lord Jesus. And this is one of those particular times because it was in his hometown. This compact account of the day when Jesus first came forward in his own town and ministered in his own home would be related with special personal interest by Peter. It bears all the marks of personal reminiscence and the evidence of them being an eyewitness on the occasion. Now this is the first miracle we encounter in Mark's Gospel and so it would be a good place for us to digress for a moment and to take a brief look at the miracles we find in the Gospels. The reality of the miracles recorded in the Gospels have been considered by many secular critics and by liberal theologians as the soft underbelly of the Bible, an easy place to attack 
the Bible. They're described by some as merely being a cure of psychosomatic maladies, of people who thought they were sick but they weren't really. Or the traces in the Gospels of pagan belief in the supernatural. And of course as modern people, we're over that now. We don't believe in the supernatural anymore. Peter, and we must remember that he's generally recognised as the source of Mark's Gospel, said on the day of Pentecost, only a short time after the crucifixion, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. A claim that would have been easily challenged in those early days. And Peter could have been made a laughing stock if it were not true. But instead on that day when he declared this, we find more than 3,000 people converted who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because they knew it was true. John likewise makes the same claim for his record of events. What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. What we've seen and heard we proclaim to you also. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. To deny the miracles that these men record is nothing less than to say to Peter and John, and remember, this is 2,000 years after the event, to say to Peter and John, you were hallucinating, or you were deluded men, or even if you're bold enough to say you're liars, because it didn't happen. But as I look at the Gospels, it is a brave or more likely a very foolish man or woman who would call men, a number of whom gave their lives for these truths, liars. The integrity of these men and their account of events is proved to me, at least, by their personal commitment to what they said. Who would die for a myth or something that they knew was a falsehood? So I believe the miracles of the New Testament and I believe the Lord Jesus performed them as they are written. But to get back to Capernaum, Capernaum was situated on the northern shores of Galilee and it had a reputation in the Gospels as a city of unbelief. The Lord Jesus said of it, And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to the heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained till this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, 
that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And perhaps there is a word of warning for us who've never had it so good. We've been through times, even in New Zealand, where in some towns there's almost a church on every corner where you could go into any bookshop and you could buy the Word of God in your own language. And yet we live in a country of unbelief. And if those words apply to Capernaum, surely they apply to us here in New Zealand today. Just how long the Lord Jesus was in Capernaum, I've not been able to determine. There's, there doesn't appear to be any record. But it appears that he made it the centre from which he moved about the region of Galilee in that ministry there. Now we read here on the first Sabbath in Capernaum, the Lord Jesus immediately went into the synagogue. And I should imagine most of you would know that synagogue is a Greek word meaning bringing together or an assembly, just as our word church does. And also, like our word church, it came to be applied to the building as well as the people who gathered in the building. It was often used as a place of teaching and expounding the law. But it was also used as a court of Jewish law in which judgments were made on particular issues. Now there was a president or leader of the synagogue and he was responsible for organising the service on the Sabbath day and determining who would read the law in Hebrew and who would expound the meaning in Aramaic to the people. There was also opportunity for visitors to seek permission to speak. And once they had been given permission by the leader of the synagogue, they were allowed to read and expound a passage of Scripture. And this is what we read of the Lord Jesus doing. And Luke gives us an example in Luke chapter 4 when he says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And this is just what he did here in Capernaum. The same thing. Taking the word and then expounding it to the people who were there. But in this next verse, reading along, the response from those that were there they were amazed at his teaching. Why were they amazed? Because he was not a man who had come through the schools of the scribes. He was not a trained man, a recognized minister. 
He was just an ordinary bloke, a carpenter's son. And yet he stood up and he spoke with such authority and with such truth that everybody took notice. They were amazed at his teaching, for he's teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Calvin, speaking of this verse, says, The meaning of the evangelist is that the power of the Spirit shone in the preaching of Christ with such brightness as to compel admiration even from unspiritual and detached hearers. And Luke says that this discourse was accompanied with authority, that is, full of majesty. Mark expresses it more fully by adding a contrast that it was unlike the manner of the teaching of the scribes. The authority with which he handled the scriptures left people astounded. His knowledge, his use of the scripture, just left them amazed. The word indicates that they were dumbfounded, left speechless. People were used to hearing men stand up and talk of trifling and irrelevant detail. Yet so bogged down on fringe issues of this one says that and this one says the other and the other says something else. But they missed the whole point of Scripture. If we take the Sermon on the Mount as an example, our Lord drew attention to the fact that the Old Testament, for instance, which were his Scriptures, was not just a rule book, but a book that spoke of our inner attitudes and that had the Gospel promise at its very heart. It is a book that spoke from its earliest pages of the promised Son to come and how God brought that promise to reality. That's what the Old Testament is all about. It's about how God kept His promise in Genesis 3.15 by bringing His Son into the world to die to sin, for sin. Great principles of truth were reduced to who is right and who is wrong and petty insignificant arguments over minute details in the messages of the scribes and the Pharisees. But in all their discussion they missed the point that it is the heart that produces the act. It is the attitude that has to be dealt with and changed. Now, can I do a commercial here? Can I ask you a question? How many of you this week have put off the old man and put on the new? How many of you remember what I said to you last Sunday? Hmm? Because this is what it's all about. Hmm? Our attitude our attitude, our hearts and the way that we look at life and the way that we look at other people. And the word tells us that if the root of the tree, that it is the root of the tree that produces the quality of the fruit, not its branches. 
It's what's in my heart that matters because that's what God sees. By the time the act has happened, corruption has already taken up residence in the heart and so he goes on. He raised the teaching of the law to a higher level not to relieve it of its importance or the necessity of obedience but to put the emphasis where it ought to be. Not on what men see but on what God sees. And God sees not as men sees but he looks upon the heart, the motives. These men had forgotten the purpose of the law, the purpose of the Old Testament, that it was the schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. It was indeed a moral and religious protection for the nation so that the nation would be marked out by holiness. It would be a hedge of godly behaviour between Israel and the nations. It was to protect Israel from the corruption of religious falsehood and surround the nation so that it could receive the blessings attached to its God-given purpose of being the vehicle through which the Messiah would come. Blessings that were never realised because of their disobedience. He came to his own and his own received them not. Here in the synagogue was preaching and teaching that was sharper than a double-edged sword and pierced the moral heart of everyone who heard so that no one could escape its truth. Well, they could put a, try and put a veneer over it. They could try and pretend that they agreed. But when it came down to them, all of them felt that he was speaking to them. That somebody had been telling him about what they had been doing. <laughs> somebody had been whispering secrets. That's what the Word of God does when the Holy Spirit is at work with it. You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It is these that speak about me. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Or on the Old Testament, with regard to the Old Testament scriptures on the road to Emmaus, he says, with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. If we are looking for something else other than the Lord Jesus in the scriptures, whether it be Old Testament or New, we are looking for the wrong thing. Because they are the scriptures that teach us about him. They speak about a righteousness not found by personal law keeping, as the scribes and Pharisees taught, but a perfect righteousness that was credited to the believer through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And John Gill says they were amazed at the manner of his preaching, which was with so much gracefulness gravity and majesty and was attended with so much evidence of power. I wonder what it would have been like to have sat in that synagogue that Lord's Day morning and to listen to the Lord Jesus. How would you feel as he looked at you, as he spoke to you, 
And those words seemed so personal that you felt that he knew everything that was in your heart. I think it would have been a very disturbing experience to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Either to hate him or admire him and love him. As someone has pointed out, the result of his preaching was in general not harmony, but division. A division of those who believed from those who would not believe. And I just wonder how we would fare today under that same preaching. What we would be talking about as we left after the service. And as he was speaking, he was talking to the congregation. A man stood up and cried out saying, What business have we with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Can you imagine what it must have been like? They were sitting there like you are, listening to me, and then suddenly a man stands up and he shouts at the, at the speaker. Thankfully, I can't remember a time of that ever happening with me. Don't, don't do it now. No. But here it is, the Lord Jesus, and a man stands up and shouts at him. What have we do to you? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, it's relevant for us here to stop for a moment and try and understand something of this man's challenge to the Lord Jesus. In the New Bible commentary, Graham Swift points out that the demon possession is a phenomenon specially associated with the period of our Lord's presence on earth. Now, take note of that. It is referred to only twice in the Old Testament and twice in the New Testament outside of the Gospels. And that's significant. Because there is a concentration of it during the period we see the Lord Jesus here on earth. And the demons were real and recognized the real purpose of the messianic office of Jesus long before the disciples were aware of it. They understood the messianic office as, as was the popular understanding that Jesus was going to come and be a king in Israel and lead the nation to superiority. He was to be a political figure. They never once realized during his ministry that his kingdom was not of this world. It was of the world to come. But when the demons spoke, they say, we recognize, we know who you are. The Son of God. And Jesus told them to be quiet because he didn't want people believing that what they say referred to the popular conception of him. During the Lord Jesus' presence on earth, the devil appears to evidence a far greater hostility than had ever been seen before or since. He doesn't have to when Jesus isn't here because 
The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. John tells us that. Society around about us already belongs to him. It's already under his power. The devil's influence permeates the whole of this world's society and is apart from God's providential intervention, the dominating force within it. It is an influence that operates as an unseen cancer within society. Any reel of understanding of history teaches us that it is an influence that is always dragging humanity down to moral degradation. Go through history. Look at the great empires of the world and see where they all ended up. It permits the appearance of enough social good in the social order of society to camouflage itself and appear to be good. Here in the New Testament we see the powers of evil provoked into an open display of opposition to God. Why? Because God was present in the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus by his personal righteousness has become an open challenge to the devil's power and the dominion he took from Adam in the garden. The second Adam has come, the man Christ Jesus, and he follows a different path to the first Adam, a path of obedience to his father. It is a defiance of the devil's power that cannot go unchallenged. It's a defiance of the devil's power that provokes malice from him. And here in full view of the congregation, the Lord Jesus is challenged openly. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. <clears throat> this poor man has no control over himself. He is used by the demon as a means of communication to deliver its opposition to the Lord Jesus. I have no doubt that it was a jeering challenge meant to persuade or to sway the hearts of those who were present there was not only a challenge but a public declaration of who Jesus is a declaration that the Lord Jesus as recorders are often trying to avoid because of popular opinion but here in verse 25 Jesus rebukes the demon and this is significant he looks at the man and he says to the demon, Be quiet. Come out of him. And immediately the man was thrown into convulsions and the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. 
This must have been an experience that shook the people who were involved. They'd not seen anything like it before. But there, the man who was previously possessed of the Spirit was standing in front of them, whole and in his right mind. There was no touching, no incantations, no long impressive sounding prayers, no shouting, Lord, deliver him! Just be quiet. Come out of him. What an awesome display this was of the Lord Jesus' authority. What an awesome display it was of his power over the devil. I've often heard Christians through false teaching giving themselves tied up in knots because of demon possession. I'm possessed of this demon or that demon. I need to be delivered. Rubbish! He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Never forget that. If you are a Christian and you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he has you in the palm of his hand. And no devil or demon is ever going to touch you. Not eternally anyway. You are safe. And here is evidence of it. A man who is possessed by a demon and he has no power to free himself. But the Lord Jesus says, be quiet, come out of him. And the demon has to obey. Here in the synagogue at Capernaum, evidence is given of the Lord Jesus' power to do as he promised. And this is why it's significant for you and for me. It's evidence that Jesus has the power to do as he promised. Now note here, there's no embellishment attached to the event. There's no attempt here in the scriptures to make it more believable. It bears the hallmarks of somebody who was there and saw what was happening and all he's doing is just describing what he saw. The king of the kingdom had come and was at work. The Lord Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And his evidence that that is true. Even demons have to obey him. It is the truth that Luther is conveying to us in his hymn that I'm sure you've, sold, uh, you've sung often, and I'm, I'm going to give you now a loose translation of that hymn to give you the idea of what he is saying. With force of arms we can achieve nothing. 
All too soon we will be trodden down. But for us fights the proper man whom God himself has provided. And were the world overrun with devils watching to consume us, we do not allow it to worry us for a moment for they cannot overpower us. Let the prince of evil look as menacing as he please. He harms us not at all. Why? Because his doom is certain. A mere word will quickly slay him. And here in the synagogue at Capernaum is evidence of that power. Evidence that left people aghast. They were all amazed. And so they were debating among themselves saying, what is this? What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him? Ari Cole said, but though it led men to wonder, the miracle did not lead men to belief. That's the sad truth. Even though they had seen this great act of power, of authority, many of them didn't believe. The city remained, like many of our own here in New Zealand, a centre of unbelief. If there were any at all who came to faith that day, we do not know. In all probability, they spent the rest of the day arguing and never seeing the point of what they had just witnessed. That they had seen the power of the King, the King of the Kingdom of God. But the question is, how do you see it? How do you see it? A myth added by someone who wanted to make the Lord Jesus look bigger than He really was? Hmm? Or do you see it as the evidence of who the Lord Jesus really is? The King of the Kingdom. The Saviour who came not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Is He your ransom? Is He the one who saves you from your rebellion? against God's rule in your life. And when you hear of him and what he has done, does your heart do a little leap inside? And if it were able to shout, Hallelujah, yes, he's my saviour. If it does, remember what was witnessed here in the Capernaum. The power of the King of the Kingdom. And for those who come and take Him as their Lord and their Saviour, He is the one who will see them into glory. Let's pray. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the evidence that we have here of the Lord Jesus' power of his authority, of his status as the Son of God, as our champion, the second Adam. 
Lord God, our Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would once again give us that confidence that we should have in him. Our great Saviour, our great Shepherd of the sheep, that we might, like the psalmist, be able to say with great confidence, the Lord is my Shepherd. Amen.